Everyone, would you turn to your Bible, Revelation 4. That's where we'll be in our series on the Bride of Christ, the church. Uh, we have hit so many different angles about what the church is about. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we talked about everybody's favorite subject, church governance and polity. I actually got a woohoo out of that. That's great to hear. Um, how the church works, right? Looking underneath the hood. And, and we described Bethesda, when we looked at the pattern of Scripture, as a plural elder congregational church. I know that's a mouthful right there. But we were saying that when we look at what Scripture gives us, underneath King Jesus, uh, he gives us two offices, elders and deacons. They each have their own function. The elders serve by leading and teaching. The deacons lead by serving, meet the tangible needs of the church in so many different ways. And then we have the congregation. The congregation exercises the keys of the kingdom, that is, deciding who the members, acknowledging, calling out kingdom citizens and saying, we acknowledge that you are, you are a Christian, should be part of this family. The congregation is responsible to decide who her leaders will be. Ultimately responsible, not just me as an elder and our other elders, to, to keep watch for protecting the gospel ministry. That is ultimately something the church, you and I all together, are responsible for, to hold on to that. And so we said, that according to the New Testament, we believe that Bethesda, at Bethesda, each of these components of elders, deacons, congregation, underneath the one person of Jesus Christ. This is God's discipleship program for His church. And so, as we've, we've done that, I, I want to shift today and talk about worship. What is the worship of the church? How should it look like? How should we do it? When I say worship, I would be willing to bet that for most of us, many of us, you immediately think of what when I say worship? Music. And so I want you to know as we get started, this sermon is not all for Lorena down here. This is for all of us because we know that worship goes beyond music. And there's so much more than that. Maybe when you think of worship, you think of the forms of music. You think of what was called or still called in some churches the worship wars contemporary music, or the hymns, right? Traditional hymns. Focusing on the forms of worship. I've definitely seen the fruit of these kinds of squabbles. Uh, different styles of worship services. You can see how some churches today will have a contemporary service, will have a traditional service. Uh, I've seen uh, some churches that will have, at the same time in one room, the pastor preaching for the traditional service, then you have the older people in that service, and then in another room, simultaneously, he's being videoed, piped in to another room with younger people for a contemporary service, and so you have two different generations, different locations worshiping at the same time. I've seen even a pastor change clothes from one service to the next to match the form of the service he was in. He would have the, the, the suit and the tie for the traditional service, and then by the time he got to the, he would do a blended service, and then by the time he got to the 
the contemporary service, it was just no tie, it was jeans, collared shirt. When we talk about worship, typically our minds go to the form and style more than the substance and the direction to where our worship goes. And so I had, I was tempted when putting this together. Originally, I had Psalm 150 as our key passage. Psalm 150 reads this. It's the last passage in in the Psalms, and it says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so the psalm seems to be saying, use everything at your disposal to praise and to adore a worthy God. But the more I wrestled with this concept of worship... I sensed the prompting that we needed to go deeper than focusing on the form of worship to instead focus on the who of worship, where we fix our gaze. I think if we get this right, the forms work themselves out. I think we have to have a right starting point. So I want us to go to Revelation 4, 1. You should know this about the book of Revelation. We are about to tread where few preachers tread. Typically, maybe you've heard many sermons on the letters to the seven churches, Revelation 1 through 3. That's not hard, but you you make that shift there from Revelation 3, 21 to 4, 1. My friend, you are in apocalyptic territory, and so uh, let us enter in. I want to read to us this passage that is full of symbolism and meaning and depth. And then we'll pray. Revelation 4.1 says this. Gentlemen, I'm just going to go to verse 2. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is what John the Apostle sees. And the first voice which I heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once in the Spirit, and behold, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. When churches offer worship as we do this morning, they are offering an imperfect form of worship for which this is the perfect and pure form. So let us go to the source of what is happening even right now in heaven as we understand how it applies to our life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have shown and revealed yourself to us so that we who were built to worship, made to worship, would know where to direct our gaze to, and we would know how to respond. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this place, those who are lacking joy, who are lacking peace this morning. Lord, through what they witness here in the imagery of Revelation 4, would you give them a reason to sing? Would you give them a reason to respond? Would you give them a reason 
for all of their lives to be one of an outpouring of joyous worship to you because we've seen you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. What does it mean to worship? There's all sorts of words that we use in the Christian life that we assume we know what they mean, but they're hard to describe when you're trying to define it to a three-year-old. Words like love, righteousness, a couple words, righteousness, faith. How do you define faith if you had to put it down on paper? I think worship is another one of those words. It seems to be difficult, but I want to give you something to, Lord willing, lock into your mind so that as you think of this word worship, you can hold on to it. Worship, the English word worship, actually comes from the old English word worth-ship. Worth-ship. And that, that, can, that can help you lock it in here. At the end of Revelation 4, in verse 11, there's 24 elders, and here's what they say. We'll look at this more in a moment, but for now, they say this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. They show us what godly worship looks like. It's the acknowledgement and ascribing to God His worth. And so when you look at somebody's life, you see what they prioritize and what they value, but what, by what they ascribe worth to. And so we all, we all do this for something. What do we spend our time and resources? Where do we daydream? Where, what we post online about? Where we focus our conversations? It demonstrates what we put our worth in. And so these elders here are saying, we put our worth in the Lord. We worship Him. And so worship is ascribing worth. That's probably the most simple way I could put it. It's continuous outpouring, we'll see as well in a moment, of ascribing worth to that which is due. And so I just want to gaze at the imagery here with you so that we would know whether we are putting our worth in the right thing. John gives us a description of the throne room. Let's go and look at it. He says, he at once was in the spirit. I'm going to read verse 2 again. And he says, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. First, we get a description of one who is seated on the throne. And John has been brought supernaturally into a vision to see this one seated on the throne. And he begins by saying he had the appearance of. Now, when you read Revelation, you'll hear John do that over and over. I saw this and it looked like this, or had the appearance of. He's trying to describe a reality to you that he can't fully describe. He can't fully put it into English words. And so he, he thinks of stones, and he goes, okay, jasper, carnelian, these are, these are stones that have something like a reddish color, and he's trying to describe this being, this one he sees on the throne. What fascinates me, and I don't know if you've picked this up, but when you read the Bible, have you ever noticed that it gives so little description, like actually what God looks like? Think about when Moses sees the, the appearance of the Lord, the back of the Lord. You think about Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord. You think about Job, when there's that storm moment and the, and jo, and the Lord appears out of a storm. When you, when you have encounters of people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament with the Lord, there's so little description of what he looks like. 
But there's a lot of description about what he says and about what he does and how people respond to him. This has helped me tremendously to, to understand where Jesus fits into this. That when we say God, God is his word, there's such a description here where the focus for you and I shouldn't be on what we see, but it should be on what he does and how he acts towards us. It's so interesting. That's what God has chose to reveal to us. And so what we look at this morning is how other people respond. That is the focus of the revelation here in the book of Revelation. It's about how people respond. Not so much what they see about the Lord, but how they respond. This being is shrouded in mystery. John repeatedly we see that here. He, he describes, I see something that was like. He doesn't have, this defies human description. And so he says, I saw the Lord. He's transcendent. He's majestic. Here's what I saw around, or what is around the throne. Verse 3b, he go, gives us more now. There's actually more description about everything else here in comparison to the being who is on the throne. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. And, the throne, and around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. You have the beings seated on the throne. You have a rainbow that is going around the throne. Some have looked at this and gone, is, is that some sort of reference back to Noah, what, where you have the bow that... Uh, was a sign of God's faithfulness that he would never flood the earth again? Is this a sign of his covenant faithfulness? Some have asked that question. Maybe. It, it's really interesting that when you read the commentators and they, they, they spend, they pour out a lot of ink to try to tell you what each one of these symbols mean. And, and I wonder, maybe sometimes, they, many of them, they get to the end of it and they go, we don't really know. These are some great options, but we don't really know ultimately what these things mean. And maybe that's the point, that for you and I, this is meant to defy description, to defy interpretation. Perhaps it's there for you and I simply to see the majesty, transcendence, and magnificence of what is happening here and go, who are we? Who are we? Around this throne are 24 thrones for 24 elders. We'll come back to that. Make note of that. We'll come back to that in verse 9. Here's what comes from the throne. So this is the one on the throne, what is around the throne. Here comes, here's what comes from the throne in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. This is not a quiet throne room. This is a very lively and loud throne room. The thunder peels back and the lightning peels back the sky. And before the throne, verse 6, were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. So John sees... This throne room, the one seated on the throne, the rainbow around it, the 24 elders, and he sees now a sea of glass, but he also sees seven spirits. 
If you begin at the beginning of the book of Revelation, you would have already, you'd have actually looked at this, what we just read here, and go, ah, that's familiar, we already read about that. Because when you read in the beginning of Revelation, Revelation 1, 4, and 5, if you want to go back there, you can turn there real quickly. He sees the seven torches of fire, the seven spirits of God. And Jesus, at the very beginning, in the introduction to Revelation, says in verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. So there's an order here. The one who was and is and is to come, the seven spirits, in Christ Jesus. I wonder who the seven spirits might be. I think the clue is in the seven. That word, that number seven there. If you know anything about apocalyptic literature, you know that the symbols and the numbers carry meaning and weight and significance. And so the seven there is a sign of per- perfection. Put that on top of the fact that we have a series of three. The one on the throne, the seven spirits, and Jesus Christ Who are you talking about when you're talking about the seven spirits? None other than the perfect Holy Spirit who has come to make his home within us and yet who also dwells before the throne of God. Before the throne of God is the very Spirit of God. And so this is what we have. A throne, 24 elders, and the Spirit of God. But it goes further about what's before the throne. Now look with me in verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each with them with wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, and this is why we sang what we sang earlier, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. The same words that Jesus had given us in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1. Same description we have here. The one who was and who is and who is to come. Let us now look. If that's a throne room, let us now look at these four creatures. Together, they're full of eyes on the front and back. This is a common characteristic. On the front and back, and they have six wings, and they have eyes on the wings all around and within. There's distinct features of each one. One's like a lion, another like an ox, another like a man, another like an eagle in flight. And I've just got to say, this is not the first time I've read this. For many of us, this is not the first time you've read this. Question, does this actually help you with the imagery? Or does this just baffle you? I read this and I go, I don't know why you mentioned this. That's the, fir- that's the first thing that comes to my mind. That doesn't help me at all, John. I-, I can't put that together in my mind. Something really interesting that I've seen as AI has developed um, over the course of the last six months is I've seen on Instagram some people have taken um, certain prompts from Scripture, certain descriptions of 
of major stories that have happened in the Bible, of the biblical accounts, and they'll plug them into AI to see what kind of imagery pops out. I'm not going to put up the imagery of this on the screen for you, but it's, it's just odd when AI tries to do that. It's, it's just downright strange. Surely it doesn't do justice either. There's an Ezekiel connection here as well. If you have ever read Ezekiel, you know that this is not the first time these four creatures are described. You see this in Ezekiel 1 that goes all the way to chapter 10 in a vision of the throne room there. And in chapter 10, 1, these four creatures are also described as cherubim or angels. And so we have in front of us supernatural beings that defy description, that we can't begin to understand. And and I I think, as I've read uh, some of the scholarship on this, I I think the best representative or best understanding of the symbolism we can make of this is that these are representatives of the created world offering up proper worship to the one who is on the throne. So when you think of the ox and the man and so on. This is proper worship of the created order to the Lord. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so if there's any question about the identity of this being on the throne, we have it here at last. He's the Almighty One. Holy, holy, holy. The same words that the angels cry out in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah gets the picture of the throne room. Holy, 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 the threefold word of repetition to our triune Lord, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The great unchangeable I am that we sang about a moment ago, or we talked about before, who was and who is and who is to come. They don't stop singing and shouting and saying these words either. Did you notice that it says day and night they say holy, holy, holy. It never stops. It is happening now. It will continue in the future. This perfect worship ascribed to the throne of God. And and I just think about this. When I think of Revelation 4, a couple thoughts come to my mind. The first one is this. Can you imagine singing and shouting and crying out like this continuously? Uh, Many of you know that I worked in a charismatic church once upon a time. Some of you may have had a background in that. And you know, there's a certain point where you're like, how many songs are we going to do, y'all, before we get down with the preaching? Because there's a lot, right? There's part of of you that just goes, wow, this this is a lot of singing. I need to sit down. And yet, these guys don't get tired of this, these creatures. For those of us, this is a second thought. Maybe for those of us, we've, I think I've mentioned this in here before, the 7-Eleven songs, right? The 7-Eleven worship songs of saying the same seven words over and over again 11 times, right? The mockery or the giving contemporary music a hard time. And yet you have these same words here, and it's not about the repetition, but it's about the depth of what they're saying. It's about the meaningfulness of what is said. You can sing and you can praise and you can say things that are, that are true repeatedly and not get tired of them. If you know that they're truth, that what you are saying in response as you gaze upon the one who is worthy, when you know that is true and it impacts you at the deepest part of who you are, 
You don't get tired of acknowledging those realities. And so we will worship together. Here's the thought that goes through my mind. We will worship with these four creatures, you and I. Think about it. One day, together with them, worshiping. We will gladly do this. And I just want to say at this point, I want to speak to those of us who are here this morning. You may self-describe as a seeker. Maybe you would describe yourself as not a Christian, but someone who is on your journey. You're working it out. When the Lord comes down, and heaven, the end of the story is not we all go to heaven, but the end of the story is that heaven comes down. See the end of Revelation. My question for you, and I've asked this before, but I want to ask it again. If you are someone here who is just here, but you don't know the Lord, if you do not desire to worship Him now, why would you desire to do that for all of eternity? That would sound miserable. If it's miserable now, it's, it would be so much worse for all of eternity. And I just want you to think about that. What is heaven, what is eternity really all about? Yes, sure, it is about the deliverance from our sin and the deliverance of pain and heartache. No more, no more cancer. No, 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 more, no more wickedness, no more health problems. Yes, it is those things, but it is so much more. It is about gazing upon the one who is worthy. And if you're a Christian in this place and you've experienced that a taste of, a taste of that reality now, man, you know that you cannot wait. There's a difference of what's been changed right here in your heart that you're going to want more of that in the future, not less. And so I want to I challenge you. Here's a test. Ask yourself, all of us, ask ourselves, do we desire to worship the Lord really? Not just in the singing, but in every aspect of our life. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? If you have a disconnect between your worship on the one hand and your joy to do it on the other, I would implore you, find the reason for the disconnect. Find the reason for the disconnect. Do I find joy in this? If the answer is no, you have some soul searching to do. I'm not just saying happiness. Okay, so let's talk about what I do every single Sunday morning. When I'm here on the front row, can I be honest with you? There's sometimes when I'm singing, when I'm a part of this, and the head is not matching up with the heart. Is that okay for the pastor to say that? He's saying that, okay? When you are here, and when I am here, one of the things I tell myself is that my worship is not based on how I feel, it is based on what is true. And so there are some times where I'm here, and I go, you will, you will put your hands out, because you're going to do this first and let the heart catch up, because you know it is an act of obedience. Do the obedient thing first. And I find inevitably, if I'm obedient, the heart catches up. And so I want to challenge you. I, I'm not saying that if you're not feeling like you're on cloud nine every single time you come in this place to worship, that you're doing it wrong. That's not what I'm saying. Emotions come and go. I'm talking about your deepest joy, though. It's ultimately your reason for worship is that you would find your joy in the Lord. If it's not, that's where the issue is. So I want to challenge you on. Ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. So you can fix his, your gaze properly on him. 
And then the worship will come naturally. Let me show you how this naturally works in the lives of the 24 elders. Verse 9 says this, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. I think I said that twice now. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, verse 11, here it is, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What strikes me immediately when I read this is that it says, when the four creatures offer worship, then the 24 elders also do the same thing. And yet, we just looked at a moment ago how the four creatures never stop worshiping, and so what does that mean? The elders never stop worshiping either. They fall down. They cast their victor's crowns demonstrating that there is something beyond themselves to the one who is on the throne. This happens continuously. You get to the end of this story in Revelation, this apocalypse of John. There's a moment where John falls down to worship an angel, and the angel says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you, and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. You worship God. So John is told, don't worship that which is not worthy of worship. Worship the Lord. And yet here in this passage, there's no ceasing of worship. It doesn't stop. The one on the throne doesn't get up and say, stop that. He receives worship because he is due worship. Who are, what's the identity, though, of these 24 elders? Again, much ink has been spilled on this. The answer is we're not told. Some, of, some people have seen this as this re- represents humanity. Others see this as the 24 elders represent angels, the angels who did not fall with Satan. Perhaps I think with Tom Schreiner, we can simply say that these 24 elders represent the people of God, and we're probably best to just leave it at that. And so you have four creatures representing all of creation, shouting out, holy. And then you have the 24 elders representing the people of God, shouting out, worthy. And they do this day and night before the throne of God. They have been doing it, they are doing it, and they will do it. It humbles me when I read these realities and go, as we were singing, Lorena, a moment ago, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, that was happening in heaven. If you believe Revelation 4. What a thought. This is the picture of the throne room. As I pondered Revelation 4 this week, you know what bothers me? I pride myself on being a a thinker, a ponderer, someone who has an analytic, analytic mind. But it bothers me that I cannot fully appreciate these realities. I cannot fully comprehend. Not only that, can I not comprehend? I want to understand. I can't fully understand. What bothers me even worse is that as I read this, I am reminded that I did not fixate on this. What a humbling thought to think. That this is what God has has been happening in front of the throne room, and yet I allow my mind to get distracted by things that are not worthy of my thoughts or time. 
added on to this, not only is this room that we looked at, throne room that we looked at majestic, it is terrifying if you think about it. If you ever wanted to feel unworthy and, and realize your own inadequacy, contemplate God on the throne with lightning, thunder, noise, and majesty. When you dwell on that, you will say with Isaiah, who am I, for I am a man who is unworthy and I'm a man of unclean lips. I not only am a sinful man who should have focused on the right things this week, which would be this. My problem is, my mind is too dull to even comprehend this. Just, And yet, this is the thing that gets me. Every single time you and I fixate on that which is unworthy that induces anxiety within us, for every time we turn back to the muck of our own sin instead of the splendor of the Creator, Revelation 4 continued to happen. And not only did it continue to happen, there was another who was next to the throne of God. And he continues to make intercession for each one of us for every single moment we forgot about him. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Christian, your sin this week did not take your father off of the throne, and it did not change Christ's intercession as your great high priest for you. Christian, the prognosis of a cancer of cancer for your loved one does not take the father off the throne, nor does it stop the son interceding on your behalf. Christian, just because the machinery may have gone out once again on your farm does not change that the father is on the throne and the son was interceding on your behalf as well. Christian, you do not have to wrestle like Esther did, wrestling on whether she should go in front of the throne. Whether there would be a fear there that she would perish. But you and I can boldly approach the throne room of grace. Knowing that you have your older brother, Jesus Christ, your high priest. Who paid the justice that you deserve. Is now seated next to the Father on your behalf. No matter how your last week just went. Revelation 4 is still for you. These realities of what God is. Who he is for you has not changed. And so this is your unchangeable God, the majestic God who gives the grace of the throne room to you. When I, when I began to think about today's sermon, I was fixated on forms. But instead, I want us to focus our gaze on the throne room and the forms will work themselves out. If you give God the worth that he is due, you will sing the songs that are, that are worthy of his name. If you give God the worth that he is due, you will live a life that is more concerned about living joyously for him than thinking about all the sins that you should not be doing. When you ascribe to him the worth that he is due, you will strive. You see he's worthy. You strive, not always effortlessly, but not as an unbeliever who's trying to win his approval before the Lord. Ascribe to him the worth that he is due. Let all of us do that when we come in here this morning. There's a temptation within me to, to, to go, some of us need to raise our hands more when we sing. I had, a, I had a brother of mine, when I first started at Bethesda, said, 
I think I mentioned this before. He said, Pastor Aaron, don't go fishing for those amens. We got those stoic German Mennonites in there, and it just, it just ain't going to happen, right? It ain't going to happen, okay? Look, I'm not so concerned about, if, actually, if you, want, if you want a passage that, that tells you what to do with your hands, men, when you worship, go to 1 Timothy 2, the holy hands to the Lord. Take that. So, Here's what I want us to think about. I'm not so concerned about what you do with your hands, what's on your face, all, all of that. I want you to look at what's in your heart. Because if you put the heart and let that gaze in the right place, you will respond the way that is most appropriate. The gaze matters more than the forms. And so when we gather also, we're gazing upon the Lord. I want you to consider this. It's not about you. And it's not about me. And it's not about our preferences. If we do something during this worship service, can I confess this to you? Uh, my, my heart does not leap over every single song that we sing. And I know that, that hurts Lorena's feelings. No, it doesn't. The truth is, if you and I walk in here and we, and we expect for the worship service to be catered towards you and I, and we walk out and someone says, how was worship? And we're immediately talking about the song selections or what the pastor said, how good it was, and we're rating it like we're consumers. We have missed it. When someone asks you, how was worship? Our appropriate response ought to be along the lines of, I believe God was glorified. I believe we encountered the Spirit when we were there because we we're all gathered together. Let's not be consumers. It's not about you and I. If I come to this worship service and I 110% love every single thing that happens, it might have been catered toward me. And I don't want that for us. When we gaze upon the king, we will sing songs that describe the king well. We will desire to read more scripture. We want to pray more together. And our response will be genuine. What if, and this is what I want to leave you with this morning, what if Bethesda's worship sought to mirror as closely as it could Revelation 4? What if Revelation 4 was our guide and not what the church down the street is doing? What if Revelation 4 led us? It would not matter how much advertising we did. It wouldn't matter... It wouldn't matter all of the other things. But genuine worship would change you and I. It would make our lives attractive to others. It would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And I believe it would change our city as we reach the lost for Christ. We do not worship in this place so that, we would, so that it would be just a, a form of evangelism. We evangelize so that people would worship. John Piper has said in his, his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, missions exist because worship of God does not. And so if you and I gaze upon this Lord who is worthy and we worship, let the forms follow as they should, but then let us then want to say we want others to join us in the same worship. I believe then we will fulfill the purpose of, of why God has brought this church into existence and why we continue to be here. He who was, is, and is to come. Our unchangeable God will continue to lead us. 
glorified name. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.